Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 43. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the one doctor on this show, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. And hello, audience. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. It's a great day today. Actually, winter came back strangely. It was all cold today. Yeah. It's been so warm this last week, bizarrely, but I guess it's okay to be cold. It was very brisk. Yes. We went outside we to get the mail, and... It was frigid. And then we realized there was a package on the side of the house that nobody delivers anything to the side of the house, you know. So we went over around the corner to see this box that had been dropped off. Uh, Who knows when? It's been raining the last few days, you know, and it got dry today. And so the bottom of the box was soggy, but it said it was delivered to a woman and this is not her address. And it said like special instructions for the delivery to put it on the side of the house inside of the gate on the left. And just coincidentally, we yeah, have a gate, a gate on, the on the left. So, yeah. Good thing in that bees in there because the guy would have been like, oh, there's bees. Oh, <laughs> yes. What if they were the box of bees? Mm-hmm. Man, that'd been horrible. Out there in the rain, trapped in a box. Did you figure out who this person was? Yes. Facebook to the rescue. Oh. My wife uh, posted about it on the town's Facebook page. Then someone read it, realized. She's the friend of the person who owns the package and never received it. So she called the the owner, said, hey, we tracked down one of your boxes for you <laughs> because she was actually missing several packages. Anyway, we're going to talk about packages in the science of boxing. No, we're going to talk about scuba diving this week. The physics of scuba diving. I'm, I've been looking forward to this one ever since we, we mentioned, hey, we need to do scuba diving. I've been... I typed too many notes and I have no idea how we're going to get through this. But there's there's a little intro thing I have typed in here that I have to talk about. But the thing is, it'll distract us forever. I ran into a (laughs) YouTube channel called Nerd of the Rings. Oh. Oh, I can't get enough of this. this? I mean, you know, because last week we watched that that, uh, crowdsource. What was it called? It was a cut of the Hobbit movies down to four hours. Yes, we, uh, you know, so my family had Rob over and we watched the Hobbit, the Bilbo edition, okay, which the Bilbo. is yes, that's what it was. the trilogy baked down into one movie, a little bit over four hours. So it takes out all of the things that the fans weren't crazy about. <laughs> Toriel. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Toriel. <laughs> anyway, Toriel. I, I despise the Hobbit movies. I watched the first one. Okay. Second one was bad. Third one, I watched half of it and I turned it off. I, I never finished it. I couldn't finish it. It was awful. Oh, yeah. And that's because I'm just a Tolkien nerd. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I've read well, the Lord way, of the way Rings. Way more than I am. I, I'm more of a Peter Jackson nerd, but I'm a oh, purist no. that cared about the Lord of the Rings movies versus oh. The Hobbit. So I despised The Hobbit's films as well. I, I've read the Lord of the Rings, I don't know, 12, 15 times. I've read them out loud twice, once to my oldest child and once to my next child two years later who wanted them, me to read them again. That's incredible. Um, I've read all the other other books in the series and the you know Unfinished Tales and Lost Tales and the Silmarillion, I don't know how many times. And I just, I'm a, I, I am a Lord of the Rings nerd. And I don't know if we can do a Lord of the Rings episode here in Equinox because that's not really science, but it is like my my third favorite subject in the world after Bible and after science, Lord of the Rings is way up there. We could do a special episode, maybe for an anniversary. Our one-year anniversary is just around the corner. Let's do something true. special. Maybe maybe our fans can weigh in. We can do an after show. Anyway, I, I ran into this YouTube uh, channel called Nerd of the Rings, and I've been binging. It does look good. Oh, it's good. Oh. Yeah, the guy just does it just right. One or two mistakes I've noticed, but it's okay because you know 
Like when he said that when the doors of Moria were closed for like 2,000 years before the companions went through. Well, that wasn't true because Gandalf had gone through the other direction. And <laughs> in Balin's day, when Balin from The Hobbit, right, between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, when he went to Moria to try to reset up the kingdom, that one of the guys tried to get out the back, but he was killed by the Watcher at the Gate. So obviously those doors have been opened a couple of times. Anyway. <clears throat> I can point you to some other videos by a channel called Looper. They specialize in just making videos about Hollywood films and indie films, uh, popular films and franchises. And they've done several about Lord of the Rings in general, Tolkien. And I've enjoyed those. Some of those might stand out to you as well. Hmm. All right. So we are going to talk about scuba diving in Middle Earth down off the coast of Gondor. So we're going to get into scuba diving. Uh, Rob, you have been a scuba diver and you've been holding out on the audience. They didn't really get told about this. We should have told them up front, but well, ex- explain yourself. Well, see what happened was I got gifted a coral reef tank when I was teaching high school. The parents association bought a tank for my, uh, my uh, classroom. And as I was learning about corals, I was like, you know what? I want to learn how to scuba dive. I had never done anything adventurous before. Oh, so the, it wasn't actually... That you had to go scuba diving for the sake of your coral work. No, it was like my enjoyment of corals led towards scuba diving. Yeah. Oh, okay. But at this point, I was spending my summers doing the outdoor education program for the school. So I was teaching rock climbing. I had never rock climbed before. Caving. I had never caved before. Kayaking. I had never kayaked before. And all of a sudden, hmm. I'm becoming like this adrenaline junkie. It's like, this stuff is great. I love this stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I got this coral thing. It's like, I'm going to learn how to scuba dive. So I learned how to scuba dive in the Berry College pool um, at a, uh, a YMCA program. I don't know anyone else who has got a YMCA. It's not that hard, is it? You just wear goggles, mask, and a tank and put on some flippers, right? It's just got to wear a special suit that keeps you dry underneath, right? There's nothing you, to it. You don't have to stay dry if the water's warm. Ah, see, it's even easier than I thought. Nothing yeah. to it. Well, no, there is nothing to it. It's a piece of cake. You can die in a dozen different ways. That's the problem. <laughs> oh, well, okay. There are all sorts of ways to die scuba diving. But you learn, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. Once you learn safe practices, scuba diving is an incredibly safe sport, especially over the last couple of decades because they've gotten a lot better at um, gauging uh, nitrogen bubbles in the bloodstream and how to avoid them. And so getting the bends is extremely rare in a scuba diving sport today. Back 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was really common. Then explain what the bends was in the first place. Um, well, in the same way, if you take a soda bottle and just open it up, all the gases that were under pressure come bubbling out. You've done that probably a million times. Well, yeah. in your body, if you put yourself under pressure, the gases in your and your lungs will dissolve into your blood. And if you come up too quickly, they come bubbling out. Specifically nitrogen, but it can also happen with helium and oxygen. But it's really hard to do with oxygen because you get oxygen toxicity before you get them bubbled into your blood. Anyway, that's a long story. I'll get to that later, I think. Mm. Um, but if you decompress too rapidly, literally bubbles will form in your blood. And they can collect in your joints, causing permanent jo- joint damage. They can collect under your skin, oh. causing bubbles and then necrosis and rotten spots. They can get into your nervous system, like your brain or your spine or any of your peripheral nerves and cause paralysis. Uh, the bends is really bad. It can kill You're you. You're really selling the scuba diving hobby here. <laughs> well, hey, man, got to talk about all the bad stuff. I mean, literally, your, your course is, here's the ways that you can die. That's pretty much a scuba course. 
And once you figure that out, everything is perfectly fine after that. So I have now, I lost count after 500 scuba dives. I mean, you can be a, a dive master at 100 dives in some programs. So I oh. think I've got about 600 or more. I just stopped counting because I didn't care anymore. It was just, you know, wow. whatever. I fill my stuff out and, and leave it in the dive office at the University of Miami. And I didn't keep my log anymore. They, they had all the records and off I went. I stopped keeping track of the number of podcasts I'd produced when I reached 500. Okay. And you, you got yeah, me see beat. That? See that? I think the same thing happened with the biblical patriarchs. Once you hit like, you know, 500 years old, you know, okay, I'm 501. Yeah, 502. Five, hey, I'm 505. Okay, I'm going to call five. And then 510, that's my yeah, next birthday. Yeah. And you kind of skip all the years in between. Yeah, I mean, what well, difference might, does it make? One, one more year. That might explain why so many of the years end in zero and five in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we have this thing called scuba diving, and it is wonderfully fun, especially when the water's warm, especially when the water's clear. But there are people that like murky diving in, in rivers to look for dead bodies, like on a rescue team, or to look for fossils, or ship diving, shipwreck diving. Ooh. Um, if you're up in the north, like if you want to go on the Andradoria or something like that, you can do it with some technical skills because it's pretty deep and the water's cold and you all oh. often can't see your hand in front of your face. Ooh. Like stretch your arm out and your hand disappears in the gloom. That's how murky the water can be. But why would you want to go down into a ship in that cold of water that you can't even see um because of the challenge and there's also brass collecting oh. brass collecting is a huge thing i mean every, everyone wants a ship's wheel oh, everyone wants a wow. porthole or uh yeah you know a okay. silver spoon from the the nice you know the promenade deck of the titanic which you can't scuba dive to is because it's too deep but you know <laughs> sure. artifact collecting is huge even though it's strongly frowned upon now, uh, but back in the day, that was always a huge thing. I think you'd get a major case of the bins if you scuba dived down to the Titanic. Don't do it. Uh, no, you'd be dead before you got there. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about the bins. <clears throat> the, um, this idea was a mystery at first. People were dying and no one knew why. They called it caissons disease uh, in the 1800s. Caissons. Okay. Caissons disease. A caisson was a brand new, brilliant idea. They would build a wooden box and put it in a river and fill it up with air. And then men could go inside the box and work in dry on the bottom of the river. And they could do something like build a, the foundation for a bridge. Oh, so they'd actually push the box down. Yeah, like if you, if you took a bucket and flipped it upside down and put it on the water, there would be air in the bucket, right? right? But then shove uh -huh. the bucket all the way down to the bottom of your pool or something. Whew. Well, there's going to be less air because of the pressure. It's going to squish the air. But if you pressurize that air it'll push all the water out and then you have air at pressure underwater and you can work under there and you can lay bricks under there and you can do all this engineering under there this is how they built the brooklyn bridge by working oh, on the wow. bottom of the river i've always wondered how some of those bridges were constructed that way oh, so long oh ago. there was a cool video not too long ago about how they built a bridge in budapest in the in the like the 1200s or something like that and oh i gotta find that again i'll have to link to it. it it is an engineering marvel and it took them decades or maybe even a century to do it but the way they did they, they would um they built a coffer dam they'd drive a bunch of pilings in the mud and seal it and then pump the water out and then you had you could literally go down to the bottom of the river and do stuff but that only works to a certain degree you can't have a hundred foot high coffer dam because the pressure at the bottom would blow out any kind of wooden thing you tried to build Oh, but if yeah. 
if you have equal pressure on the inside as the outside, you don't get any leaking. And so that's how they built the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, the Hudson River Bridge, and a place called Eads Bridge, which con- connects St. Louis and East St. Louis across the Mississippi River. Hmm. That's actually when they first noticed they had 18 workers just died. And oh, no one knew why they died. Bridge, huh? That's 1871, yeah. the Brooklyn Bridge, two years later, a bunch of people got sick. I think the lead man on the project, an engineer, he got this disease and he spent a long time sitting in his house looking at the bridge that they were building, even though he was an invalid now, and started really thinking about it. And then the Hudson River Tunnel, 1899, I think it was, that's when they said, oh, these are air bubbles. Wow. And we have to depressurize people slowly and give it time for the air bubbles to come out of their blood. So a lot of people died in those decades after they invented the caisson before they figure out what was actually killing them. Interesting. And it would strike randomly. You could be working down there for a month and all of a sudden, boom, you got it. Or one person would get it, one person wouldn't get it. And they noticed that the symptoms would go away when they went back into the caisson. Oh, oh, my aching joints, they don't ache anymore because the pressure would squish the bubbles back down. Oh, but if you went in and out, if you were, if you had some symptom of some sort, and this whole range of different symptoms, if you kept going in and out, it would probably kill you eventually. Yeah. But it took them a lot of of experimenting to figure it out. And they, I would think you know, so. they had to pressurize this thing up to like 55 pounds per square inch. The air we're breathing right now, the atmosphere we live in is only 14.7 pounds per square inch. That's one atmosphere of pressure. 55 yeah, psi is, let's see, 30... 412 is 42. That's like almost four atmospheres of pressure. That's nearly 100 feet down in the water. Hmm. And if you're talking about scuba diving depths now, I don't like diving deep. You go down to 100 feet on one tank of air. Well, first of all, your air gets used up pretty quickly. But second of all, you can only spend like 15 minutes, 20 minutes on the bottom. Hmm. Because the, uh, the nitrogen's building up in your blood. You've got to come up and hang on a line for a half an hour to degas the nitrogen about 30 feet. And it's boring as spit. Yeah. I hate diving deep. <laughs> it's just, you spend, you know, all this time getting ready and you travel, you get on the boat, you go out, you know, and then you get what, 10 minutes on the bottom? <laughs> what good is that, man? Give me, you give me 20 feet. I don't have to spend any time decompressing and I can spend two hours on one tank of air. Ooh, that does sound cool. As long as the water's warm. The water's cold, you shiver and your muscles generate a, uh, carbon dioxide and makes you breathe heavy. Because hmm. here's something really weird. We don't have an oxygen sensor in our body. How, what do you mean by an oxygen sensor? What would you expect that to be? Oh, I don't know. I would expect to say, oh, I'm, I have to breathe because I need oxygen. I have to breathe again. I need oxygen. That's not the way it works. We breathe to get rid of carbon dioxide. <laughs> oh, yeah. The CO2 oh. changes the pH of the blood, and that's what triggers the brain to say, breathe. We have no oxygen sensor, which is why um, they warn you, you know, if, if you go into a... Um, Let's say you're an industrial worker and there's a, a, a giant gasoline storage vessel that's now empty of gasoline. They say, don't go in there because the fumes of the gasoline are still there and you'll walk in there doo, 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 and you'll just fall over dead. And you'll never know that you're dead because you're breathing, you're getting rid of the carbon dioxide, but you're not getting any oxygen and your brain doesn't know it. Ooh. It's insidious. So oxygen, carbon dioxide, pressure, this is all really interesting, but... um. How do you say it? Why? Okay. The the next question I always have is why do you burn air faster at depth than you do on the surface? I mean, a standard scuba tank, it's, I don't know how big it is, but it's not very large Mm -hmm. on the inside. And they put 80 cubic feet of air inside that. So just to to define their terms, because I'm not familiar, the scuba tank is just the oxygen tank, right? Uh, No, it's not oxygen. We'll get that in a second. If that was oxygen, you would die at 10 feet. 
But is it what people think of as the oxygen tank? Yes, it's air. Okay. Except, except unless you're doing exotic mixing of gases, it's just air. You run it through an air compressor and you shove pressurized air into a tank at 3,000 PSI. You get 80 cubic feet. So let's say 80 cubic feet would be um, oh, 8 feet by 10 feet by 1 foot thick. So um, think of um, the volume of your couch. If, if you made a balloon the size of your couch, how many times could you breathe in and breathe, you know, <laughs> suck air out of it and breathe it out into the room? How many times before you deflate that balloon? Oh, yeah. Huh. A while, right? Yeah. Well, if, you're, if you practice, you burn a lot less air. New newbies, when you first jump in the water, man, you're sucking air like crazy, and you, they're oh, blowing bubbles. Right. And, and but then you, you, after a long time of practicing, you realize, oh, you keep your hands on your chest, keep everything streamlined, you move as little as possible, and therefore you burn less air. You have to breathe less, and your air consumption just drops like a rock. And that's when you know you've arrived in the scuba diving world. So you don't travel very quickly with scuba suit. It's uh, slow going. And oh yeah, because you're concerns. swimming through water, and you've got all these these things sticking off that, that cause drag. But you minimize your drag as much as you can, and you don't you don't work hard because if you work hard, you use up your air quickly. In the same way, if you run or lift weights or do any sort of exercise, you breathe heavy. Right. That would explain why when you're watching like a a spy film and somebody is secretly going through the sewers to go up through the vault to sneak into the headquarters and you know they begin in their scuba suit the in the in the action flick they're moving pretty quickly but then if you're watching a nature documentary and they're doing some scuba diving those guys look like they're they're moving about as fast as the astronauts moon jumping yeah like they're just really kind of sluggish and i always wondered why they were moving so slowly uh they, they never bothered to explain that. Yeah. Well, you can tell when you watch a documentary who on the crew is an experienced scuba diver and who isn't. Oh. An experienced huh. scuba diver will never use their arms. Their kicks are very precise. Every movement is is measured. And people who are new, they wiggle a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Huh. All right. Let's talk about pressure. Yes. Take a um, um, oh, a bicycle pump. Okay, and and pinch yeah. the hose so you can't the air won't come out when you push the plunger down. Yeah. Now the air can't come out, and you got the thing high, and now push the plunger down. What happens to the air inside the tube? Right, it starts to get compressed, and it's tougher the way it'll on the way down. That's right. Can't, I can't even probably reach the bottom. We probably not because the pressure will be so high by the time you you started getting down there. It also get hot. Yeah. But Boyle's law, named after Charles Boyle, the famous chemist, Boyle's law tells us that the volume is inversely proportional to the pressure. Double the pressure, volume goes down by half. Decrease the, pre- decrease the pressure, volume will go up. So take a balloon and you know, you're at, at let's say you're, um, you're in a plane and you blow up a balloon and then the plane takes off and you go up to 25,000 feet, the balloon will shrink. No, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> the, the balloon will expand because it's lower pressure. So that escapes me because you would think with the less pressure, well, Less pressure in the atmosphere means the pressure of the molecules in the balloon can push against the air and expand. Like you were saying, we have a little bit over 14 pounds of pressure here on the ground, but we don't up in the air, up in the sky in the plane. Yeah, no, no, an airplane is semi-pressurized. It's not ambient pressure, but it's they don't keep Mm -hmm. it one atmosphere because it's too hard to do that. They don't want Mm -hmm. the plane to collapse. Have you ever seen one of those videos where a a tanker truck will implode? Uh, No. They'll take one of those steel tanker trucks, those semi-trucks. Uh-huh. And they'll pump the air out of it. And all of a sudden, it goes and it literally implodes. Ooh, 
That's oh, cool. Well, that's because there's 14.7 pounds per square inch Ooh. on that metal. And when you start decreasing the pressure, you know, it's a pressure difference. If it's 14.7 inside and outside, nothing happens. But if it's 13 inside and 14.7 in outside, that's that's a pound and a half per square inch. And the more the pressure inside drops, the more that container wants to squish. <laughs> Same thing happens to your lungs. If you take a breath of air, like if you, let's say you don't have scuba, but you're snorkeling, you take a, take a deep breath and go down. Your lungs collapse at 33 feet, 33 feet of water or 10 meters of water is one atmosphere of pressure. One, sorry, one extra atmosphere of pressure. So you're at one atmosphere at the surface. You go down. Now you're at two atmospheres at 33 feet. Your lungs are one half the size. You go down to 66 feet, which I have done on snorkel many times. Your, your lungs are now at one third the size. You go down to 100 feet, which I've never done on snorkel. Your lungs would be one quarter the size. When you say snorkel, is that the same as just a standard issue scuba diving suit? Um, no, I'm just saying just a mask and a snorkel with no tanks, no regulator, no, no scuba anything. Oh, okay. I'm just skin diving. You just take a breath and go down and your lungs collapse. Ooh. Therefore, now do the same thing, but put on a scuba tank and go down to 100 feet. Take one breath of air. That's the same thing as four breaths of air on the surface. Oh, you have four okay. times as much air in your lungs as you do in the surface. And it's four times as many molecules, but it's the same volume. It's one lungful, but it's four times as many molecules. That is fascinating. If you took your couch-sized balloon and brought it down, it would shrink to one quarter the size at 100 feet. And if you start breathing that, it's going to take you one quarter the amount of time to breathe through than it would at the surface. Therefore, the deeper you go, the faster you run out of air. Hmm. So there isn't a way around this with an innovation. Like It's not like they're working on a new kind of tank that would just suddenly exponentially increase the, the, you know, the amount of air. And, no. You, know. you could have a higher pressure tank. Instead of 3,000 PSI, you can have a thicker wall tank that goes higher, or you can carry more than one tank with you. What are the tanks usually made from? Steel? Uh, in the old days, they were steel, and the steels were nice because they were heavy. Um, but almost all of the, um, even commercial, but just about everyone today, uh, recreational commercial, they use aluminum tanks. Huh. And they're annoying. They're a lot lighter, but they're annoying because they're positively buoyant when you start running out of air. Oh. So when you first jump in, you sink. And then as you breathe air, all of a sudden you start floating. And if you don't want to go to the surface, you can't stay down because you're, you're, you've got this life preserver on your back that's starting to rise. So you need extra weights on you just to, just to balance the lightness of the tank when the tank starts getting empty. Huh. And it's no big deal, but it, it's one of those yeah. things where yeah. you know, you're, you're staying down, staying down, so all of a sudden you're floating. It's like, like a cork. Why am I going up? I don't want to go up. Well, it's because your, your tank's getting empty. Huh. Okay. I had a, a near-death experience, you know, speaking of ways not to kill yourself. When I was a brand new scuba diver, I went to visit some friends who were fish collectors off the uh, Pompano Beach, just north of Fort Lauderdale area. And they were, you know, gonzo crazy. The, the guy had gotten bent more than once and just bent as in getting the bends. And they were diving in 125, 130 feet of water. And I was a brand new scuba diver who had never been in open water before. I had no business doing this. And yet they Ooh. didn't think about my safety. And so we jump off the boat and start going down and all of a, you can't see the bottom. This wasn't crystal clear Bahamas water. This was, you know, Gulf Stream, Florida water. And get halfway down, I'm 75 feet down. I can't see the surface and I can't see the bottom. This oh, is wow. really awkward. And I get all the way down and okay, here we are. Whew. Um, 
And one dive, um, his wife had me. It's the only time in my life I ever used one of those underwater scooter things. Scooter Literally. things? Yeah, yeah. You grab onto it, it's got a fan, it pulls you through the water like a James Bond sort of thing. Oh, yeah. They actually had one. I think I've never, seen all, one, my yeah. 600 scuba dives later, I'd never even seen another one, but they had one because they're going around trying to get fish. And she has me grab onto her tank and she scoots me over and drops me in a sand pile and tells me to turn around. She just does a circle with her hand. So I turn around and I'm five feet away from a moray eel bigger than me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and But I'm in 120 feet of water and air goes fast. And I start going, because <gasps> I'm, I'm scared to death. I, I didn't know things existed like this. I'd never seen anything like this. I wasn't a marine biologist yet. I was terrified of this monster, like literally staring at me. And the way they breathe, they gape, their mouth open. And I was like, he's going to eat me. And I look at my gauge and every time I take a breath, the needle goes, and I could literally <laughs> see me sucking the air out of this tank. It goes down, 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 down. I'm like, I'm out of air. I got to go to the surface. But you can't run out of air at 120 feet. That kills you because you have to go up and hover at about 30 feet and give yourself time to degas the nitrogen. Oh, so when you were saying going up and degas... You're not even degassing at the surface of the water. You're you're at thirty feet down for thirty minutes. Yeah, or or twenty minutes. It depends on how deep you go and how long you stay. There's all these tables of how long I have to hang at what temper at what depth. So you can do it on the surface, but it's that last that last thirty feet is one atmosphere of pressure. That's a big difference as far as the nitrogen bubbles are concerned. Yeah. So you go up to about you know thirty feet, fifteen feet, depends on the tables, and you stay there and you let the, all the nitrogen off gas out of your blood and then you can go to the surface but the thing is as a new scuba diver i did i made a mistake a lot of times you you just after you get everything set up on the tank you, you crank open the the uh, the valve and you look at your regular at your gauge to make sure it goes up to three thousand pounds okay but i just cracked it i didn't open it up all the way i, I didn't think of it and i didn't even notice it until I'm um I'm hovering there in this Gulf Stream as the boat the boat the water's too deep to anchor. The person on the boat has to drive the boat around and follow the bubbles of the divers. <laughs> oh, this is, this is not good. I never did anything like this again because it was just the whole thing was just stupid. But I, I'm I'm sitting there trying to relax, and all of a sudden I go and I couldn't breathe in. I could breathe out, oh, but then my. I couldn't breathe in. And I'm like I'm a third. I'm gonna die. And but what happened was because my valve wasn't open enough i had air in my tank but the air couldn't flow through fast enough to fill up my lungs yeah wow in the same way if you um if you took a um a two liter coke bottle and emptied it and you could probably suck all the air out of it make it collapse right yeah okay do that to a glass jug (laughs) you can't do it right Uh -uh. because the walls won't collapse you cannot suck the air out if you had to breathe out of that you'd be dead you can't pull any air out of it at all. Well, that's what's happening to me. The, the pressure in the tank was about the same as the pressure of the water. And therefore, when I tried to breathe in, there was no air to breathe. When I went up to 20 feet, all of a sudden I could breathe again, but I didn't know that. I literally said, I'm about to die. So 10,000 ways to kill yourself, scuba diving. That's one of them right there. Whew. So 33 feet, one atmosphere, 66, uh, one extra atmosphere, 66 feet, two atmospheres extra. 100 feet, three atmospheres extra is all Boyle's law. The volume of the air is proportional to the pressure or inversely proportional to the pressure. Crazy, huh? Hmm. Yeah, it's very neat. All right, here, let's go into some physics and, and uh, numbers. Numbers are weird. One atmosphere of pressure is 14.7 pounds per square inch. It's also 101 kilopascals 
Why? Because scientists like different ways of measuring the same exact thing. It's also about one bar. You ever hear the word barometric pressure? Yes. Well, a bar is is almost, one bar is almost one atmosphere. It's also close to one kilogram per cubic centimeter or per, per centimeter squared. <laughs> so on one centimeter, one tiny little centimeter, put on two and a half pounds. That's how much pressure an atmosphere is. Think of you know, your hand, yeah. how many square centimeters the back of your hand is. And on each square centimeter is a kilogram of pressure. That's a lot. And we live in that. That's a normal pressure that we're held in. Now, if that pressure was suddenly reduced, our skin would boil. <laughs> so yeah. this, is, this is good. This is what holds the water in our bodies and things like that. It's also yeah. 10.3 meters of water. 10.3 meters, Excuse me? meters of water. What? How do you measure pressure in meters of water? Well, um, if you took a garden hose that was more than 30 feet long and you submerged it in your pool such that all the air comes out, and then attach a, a, an end cap on one of them, like one of those sprayer hoses or something. Um, attach that to one end of it, but don't squeeze the handle. And start lifting it up out of the water. The water in the hose is going to rise above the level of the pool. It's going to be in the hose as you lift it up, 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 up. And you can actually go up about 30 feet. If you try to go up to 33 feet, a bubble will form, a vacuum bubble between the end of the hose and the top of the water. And if you could, you could raise that hose up 100 feet, if you had a 100-foot long hose, 100 feet up into the air, the water is only going to rise about 30-ish feet, 10.3 meters. That's how much air pressure is pressing down on the pool, forcing water up into the hose. When you try to go higher, it actually breaks a vacuum. This is why a pump cannot pull water uphill. You can't put a, a pump on the top of the oh, Empire State yeah. Building and pull water up to the, the bathrooms on the ob observatory level of the Empire State Building. It's impossible. It only goes up about three floors. But if you put a pump on the bottom, you can pump the water, force it uphill as far as you want, you know, within reason. So <laughs> pulling, if you try to pull, you'll eventually pop a vacuum or pull a vacuum, they call it, and then you, it won't go any higher. It's also, have you ever heard of um, inches of mercury? Uh, I think only from you once. Oh, okay. When we were talking about mercury. Well, if you if you look at a barometer, like, you know, the ship's captain, oh, the mercury is falling or something like that. The the needle on the gauge is going down. <laughs> it's like a pirate. He's like, oh, the mercury is falling, you lads. Exactly. And you'd be like, what's he talking? Well, if you take a pool of mercury and into that put in a tube that's closed at one end and fill that whole tube up with mercury, like a glass tube, let's say. You can lift it up and up and up and up and up and up and up, and all of a sudden, it will pull a vacuum about 30 inches up, 760 millimeters or 30 inches up. All of a sudden, there'll be a space at the top of the tube. Now, all of a sudden, you have a barometer. As the air pressure outside changes, the level in that tube is going to go up and down. And so it's measured in inches of mercury. So if you get down to, you know, 28 inches of mercury, oh, it's low pressure. There's a storm coming. High pressure would be 31 inches of mercury. Cool, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think. All, right, now all this has to do with scuba diving in, in different ways. All this, these weird pressure things. Right. What happens in your lungs and stuff like that. All right. Hey, don't look at the notes. Take a guess. Okay. When was the first scuba system invented? Well, it seems very steampunk. So I'm going to say the late 19th century. What? Are you kidding? Yeah, 1878 in Germany. <laughs> but it wasn't the type of scuba that we know. It was actually a rebreathing system where the air from the lungs was passed across some potash, literally ashes. <laughs> what? But that's a CO2 scrubber. It absorbs CO2. 
Interesting. Now you do run out of oxygen pretty quickly, you know, three, four, five breaths, and all of a sudden there's no more oxygen. So if you could add oxygen to the system and remove the carbon dioxide, you can spend spend a lot of time underwater. Or if you start off with 100% oxygen, then you can you breathe until you run out of oxygen. Um, let's say you use about 4% of oxygen per breath. So 100%, 96%, 92%, 88%. It, it, it would take you a lot, many breaths before you got down to 20%, which is normal atmosphere. And then you can still breathe for a breath or two more. Oh. Except oh. oxygen is toxic. That is so weird to hear that. I mean, I know in terms of scientific, you know, understanding that it is toxic. But when we talk about the air we breathe, we don't think of it that way. Sorry. Um, yes, to- oxygen is toxic to the central nervous system. Besides the fact it's a toxin in general, high pressured oxygen causes your nerves to short circuit. So there is a limit to how far down you can go on 100% oxygen. It's, li- it's like 10 feet. Mm. There's a limit to how far you can go on regular oxygen in the air. It's um 190 feet or something like that. I don't remember the exact number because I, I never learned it, but you can't, you cannot put on a scuba tank and go down 200 feet. You will okay. go into convulsions okay. and you'll die. Mm. There's a, mm. besides the fact you're going to run out of air very quickly. If you did go straight down, you'll, you'll, you'll start convulsing and that's it. Right. You're, you're done. Mm. So oxygen is toxic. So nitrogen is toxic under pressure because of the bubbles that happen when you come back up. Oxygen is toxic under pressure. Man, gases are bad. Yeah. So. Mm. You can't have a 100% oxygen rebreather, but you can have a modern system. They literally, just the last decade or two, they've gotten really good at it, have a computer monitoring the amount of carbon dioxide and monitoring the amount of oxygen and simply scrubbing out the carbon dioxide and adding enough oxygen for your needs. And then you don't have to blow any bubbles. You keep breathing the same air again and again and again and again. Hmm. Called the rebreather. Really cool idea, but unless you have a computer to do it, it's really problematic. Oh. So, like the Navy SEALs, they love rebreathers because you don't have any bubbles. They can sneak up underwater on you know some some enemy. Yeah. But the old rebreathers, they couldn't go deep. They had to stay pretty shallow, which is a giant problem if you're a Navy SEAL trying to sneak up on someone and you're not deep underwater. Yeah. But the, the <laughs> new ones, you can go pretty deep with them, and it's really cool. Well, so, yeah, yeah, okay. The first scuba-like system was invented in the 1800s. Okay, but I will... Well, speaking of which, what yeah? does the term stand for? What? Scu- scuba? Oh, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that's pretty self-explanatory. The first practical scuba system, even though they had the valves and they had pressurized tanks and they had hoses and masks, but the first time someone ever put everything together in a practical way was Jacques Cousteau oh. in 1942. In German-occupied France. See, uh, since we y- you were saying that the first example of scuba was in 1878, what was different between Jacques Cousteau's and the, uh, the earlier one in Germany? Well, he had taken a pressurized tank and two hoses, one on the left and one on the right, that went to a mouthpiece that you could just breathe off the pressurized tank. And it just, it was simple and it worked very well. Hmm. The issue, the biggest issue was that the hose had a high pressure. And the mouthpiece was a regulator. So you breathe in and it would go from high pressure to and you could breathe normal air. But a high pressure hose means, you know, if there's a leak, it's all the air is going to come out really quickly. And it wasn't very well regulated. And there's all these things. They didn't know what 
really what the limits were for the, the human body. They didn't know what would cause the bends. They knew it would happen, but they didn't know how. And they learned the hard way. I, I believe the story, I should have looked this up because I'm going to go out on a limb here with memory, but they were exploring, he and his partner were exploring an artisanal well somewhere in France where the water would go up and down naturally, kind of like a, a toilet bowl, you know, how the water goes up and down in the toilet bowl when you flush it. <laughs> right. And they said, oh, this must be some, you know, hydraulic something or other. And so they went way down deep to explore it. And they got something that Jacques called the rapture of the deep. Today, Ooh. we call it nitrogen narcosis. And it happened to me once, and it's very disturbing. Under pressure, oxygen, uh, no, sorry, under pressure, nitrogen makes you high. Oh, huh. It's a wonderful feeling, but you get really dizzy, and all of a sudden, you don't know which way is up. And it was on one of my earliest first dives in Belize, uh, about 80 feet of water. It's my first time I had gone that deep. So it was before this, this disaster on the, on the Florida coast with my friends. This was the dive master and it was training sort of dive. And I went down. All of a sudden, everything got very strange and the world started tilting. And I'm like, woo. I mean, it, it literally, I felt a little bit high. Yeah. And, but I knew what it was. And so I just went up about five feet and it totally went away instantly. Huh. And I spent the rest of the dive hovering above the dive master, behind him and above him a little bit, which gave me a safety margin because the, the less deep you go, the less the less nitrogen builds up in your blood, so the less risk it is for the bends. And plus, I didn't get all woozy. And it never happened again. I've been down you know, much deeper than that many times, and it never happened again. But that first time, I, it was... So this happened to Jacques Cousteau, apparently, yeah. in this spring, and his happened to his friend, too. And they didn't know which way up was. So Jacques went one way, and his friend died. Oh, wow. 50-50. Which way do we go? You go that way, I go this way. And Oof. yeah, so one of the early pioneers of scuba died pretty early in the pioneering days because of the mm. rapture of the deep. Mm. So a, an Australian <clears throat> invented the first real scuba system in 1952. So Jacques, he patented it, his system in 1945, right after the end of the war. Oh, okay. They called it the Aqualung. As in, you know, the Jethro Toll. Hey, Aqualung. Anyway, sorry. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But the first modern, what we would call scubas in Australia in 1952, what it was, was there was a regulator on the tank itself, going from high pressure to low pressure in the hose, not a high pressure hose, a low pressure hose, and only one of them, which went to a mouthpiece where you could breathe in and breathe out through the mouthpiece. I'm guessing Jacques Cousteau's thing was like you breathed in, but when you breathed out, it just bubble out through your lips like around the thing you're trying to hold in your mouth, which means water could get in your mouth. You might choke or something. I don't know. I've, I've never actually seen one of these things. I've, I, I don't know what they are. But the new one, you breathe in and breathe out through the same mouthpiece because there's a little flappy valve in there. And that was it. Now, that started the modern scuba trend. And a lot has changed since then, but a lot's the same. I mean, pressure is the same. Um, nitrogen is the same. We've just learned a lot about the human body. And one of the things when they invented um, ultrasound, you can put an ultrasound thing on your carotid artery in your neck and you can hear zing, zing, zing. Those are the nitrogen bubbles huh. in your blood. Oh, that just gives me the ASMR jitters. Oh, yeah. about it. Yeah. And once they realize that, then now they can actually measure exactly the bubbling process. And the goal is no bubbles. And yet for a long time, we, I mean, I, I started in the, I guess 91, no, 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 sorry, about 94, 95-ish. And we were using new, the U.S. Navy dive tables. That was a standard everything. It was 
at this depth, if you're here for this long, you come up to this depth and you outgas for this long and then you come to the surface. The thing is, people realize, wait a second, we got a bunch of, you know, 50-year-old fat guys going down to the Bahamas to go scuba dive and they keep getting the bends. And yet they're following the dive tables. Oh, yeah, the tables were designed for extremely healthy, physically active young men Oh, huh. in the Navy, not for <laughs> Joe Blow. And so the recreational dive tables came after after that. Basically, they, they took all the Navy stuff and they just subtracted numbers to make it more safe. Oh, and then sense. they had dive computers that came out. So now you don't have to just go to a certain depth and then go up. The dive computer will calculate how long you've been at each depth and integrate. And one of the things that they do now a lot, if you have a good place where you can do it, you start deep and you swim up. So you get more and more shallow and you're degassing throughout your dive. And you don't actually have a decompression stop if you have a sloped area that you can swim up along. All sorts of little things like that. Yeah. Huh. I didn't realize so much of scuba diving depended upon good breathing technique. It's all breathing, man. Because it doesn't look, well, it doesn't seem like it because you're swimming. I thought you were going to get on the show and say you want, you know, a good, reliable oxygen tanks and a good suit and you want things that are comfortable. You want to think about this brand of suit versus that one. And you want to be a good swimmer. You you want to be familiar with swimming. You know, you want to swim with the you fish. You do want to be familiar like- with swimming. You, you want to be very comfortable in the water. The more comfortable you are in the water, the better off you are. But the brand of tank, the brand of regulator, the brand of buoyancy compensator. Flippers. I'm, I'm a little particular about my fins. I have got 1960 style scuba pro fins. They're short. They're hard. I love them. They're not those long, flexible things that a lot of the people use showing off. No, I got these stout, hard, short fins, and they are the best. Because as a marine biologist, I had to spend a lot of my time on the bottom. And long fins just got in the way. So I'm a little snooty about my fins, but nothing else. I don't care about anything else. Nice. Okay. So in the air, oxygen is 21% of our atmosphere. And you use up 4 or 5% of that, and you breathe out about 16%. Carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere, and you breathe out 4%. If you remember earlier, we don't have an oxygen sensor. We have a carbon dioxide sensor. you got to get rid of that carbon dioxide. One of the issues, what, have you ever seen the movie The Abyss? I don't think so. I've heard of it. Okay. Um, it was a, if they got rid of the aliens, it would have been a great U.S.-Russian nuclear spine tingler spy movie. But it had aliens in it also, which was like, I was dumb with aliens. Oh, okay. Anyway, well, in one of the parts, they take a mouse and drop it in water. Ooh. And they're like, oh, the mouse is going to die. But he doesn't die. He starts breathing, gasping under the water. <laughs> they had drop, dropped him in some perfluorates, perfluorocarbon. It's fluorine and carbon compounds that absorb oxygen. And so you can literally breathe this liquid that's perfused with oxygen and live weird and so in one of the <laughs> yes that is so weird and what i was it george clooney in that movie and mary alice mastrantonio or whatever i think those were the two people anyway um they the, at the end the guy's got to go very 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 deep because a, a nuclear bomb had fallen down the crack of doom and he's got to go down there clip a wire and stop the nuclear bomb from going off and well you can't go down that deep on air but you can go down that deep on liquid and so they put him in a suit and they fill it up and now he's breathing this liquid and there's no pressure problems and you can go as deep as you want at this point. They send him down to the bottom of the thing and he clips the wire and saves the day. Hooray. The thing is, 
it doesn't quite work as well as that. Oxygen is easy to deliver. Carbon dioxide is difficult to remove. The rate of diffusion from the blood into the liquid depends upon the difference in partial pressure of the carbon dioxide, but you're only breathing out 4% carbon dioxide. So 4% to 0%, that's not a big difference, and it, it diffuses very slowly. So this um, breathing liquid thing has not really caught on because you can't do it for a long period of time, and you can't get you can't exercise at all. Huh. If you start producing carbon dioxide, you'll die of carbon dioxide poisoning, even though you have plenty of oxygen. Right. Weird. Huh. Right. I, I did not think about that. Huh. However, all these problems with nitrogen and oxygen and things like that, there are other gases in the world, right? What if you start mixing gases? Can you change how far deep you can go? And the answer is absolutely. One of my favorite things was when I took a class on nitrox. Nitrox diving um, was resisted for a long time, but then people realized how good it was. The Navy started it. Basically, they, they just use regular air because air is mostly nitrogen. And then you add a little bit of oxygen to it, and that displaces some of the nitrogen. And now you have a tank that has extra oxygen in it. It's called nitrox. Less nitrogen means less nitrogen bubbles, which means it's safer. You don't have to decompress as much. You can go a little deeper. But the problem is extra oxygen means you can't go as deep as you can go on air before you hit that, that oxygen toxicity limit. But when we were using this, and we'd had trips down to Florida Keys where we were staying on land, for two weeks and every day we're going out diving a couple of times, night, day, whatever. And we're doing a lot of nitrox diving. And the day before we'd fill our tanks up and we had to put an oxygen meter on there and measure the amount of oxygen. And then you put a piece of tape over it and you write the oxygen on the valve. And as soon as the tape was removed, you knew that was that that tank had been used or whatever. You couldn't trust it. But as long as the tape was on there with a the number, you knew how exactly how much oxygen there was. And we would rush to get into the dive locker first to grab the tank with the highest oxygen concentration and be like, ha, ha, I got the tank. Ha, ha, ha. Right. And everyone be like, oh, man. Because right. even, even at 22%, 23%, you know, oxygen, air in the air, oxygen in the air is 21%. But you just enrich it 1% or 2%. And... You don't get tired when you're scuba diving. Nice. Your muscles don't get sore. When you're done, you feel refreshed. It's huh. bizarre just because a little that bit of extra really oxygen. But it's a safety thing right. as long as you don't go deep. That's called nitrox. Wonderful. Loved it. There's another gas. It's called heliox. Heliox. 80% helium and 20% oxygen. There's no nitrogen in it. And helium, because it's such a small molecule, because it's, it's an H2, it's a molecule, it bubbles out of your blood very quickly. And you can decompress a lot faster on helium than you can on nitrogen. <laughs> oh, okay. And you can go a lot deeper too. No, no, it's not true because oxygen is still toxic. You can't go that much deeper. The problem is there's the thing called helium toxicity. Basically, helium does the same thing to your nervous system that oxygen does, but at a deeper pressure. And so it's, there is some safety there. Uh, the, the deal with Heliox is, is you don't get the bends. Very, very difficult to get the bends on Heliox. That's kind of cool. But yeah, huh. you know what dive shop in the remote Bahamas has a tank of helium and a tank of oxygen? It doesn't exist. So it's only for technical people who have a land-based facility to do that. And they can load their tanks up, go out, you know, reef diving, wreck diving, or something like that. And it's, it's really not for your average Joe. It's really a Navy sort of thing. Hey now. But there's also something called trimix. And trimix, you can mix it differently depending upon what depth you're going. And if you mix helium, nitrogen, and oxygen at different levels, you can literally put two tanks on your back with different gas concentrations. And you can go down oh. and use one gas mix at one depth and another gas mix at another depth. 
Or you can hang a bottle on a line, and as you're coming back up, you can switch bottles. Or grab, you know, this bottle tied to the line, hold it to your chest, put that regular in your mouth, and now you've got two on your back and you're holding one, and you can go up on a different gas mix. This is amazingly cool. This all this really fun chemistry and physics that's really simple chemistry and simple physics. I mean, Boyle's laws is is easy. Increase the pressure, decreases the volume. Okay, piece of cake. But then you get the biology of it and you got the fun of it. And the last thing that I want to talk about is shallow water blackout. Oh, okay. This doesn't happen. By the way, that does that sounds deadly, but when you say shallow water, it sounds like a joke. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely it'll kill you dead. This is for free divers, people without a scuba tank on who are just holding their breath and going down. Okay. Yeah. Because the pressure increases in your lungs as you go down, as long as the oxygen pressure in your lungs is above, I don't know, 15%, I don't remember what the number is, you won't black out. But as you start coming up, the pressure in your lungs decreases and you might've been just fine at depth. But as you're coming up, when you reach a critical point, the oxygen percent, the oxygen pressure in your lungs drops below the blackout level. And you'll be swimming up, 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 and boop, you black out, and you sink back to the bottom, and you're dead. <laughs> this is a big problem for, you know, people who have got the, I, you know, they, they tie a, um, a, a lead weight to their feet, and they let go of the boat, and they rock it down hundreds of feet. And then they, they loosen the lead weight, and they go back up to the surface again and say, I just had the deepest dive of any human being ever. <laughs> and they're, you know, free divers trying to get super deep. And it's a very interesting sport with a very short life expectancy. <laughs> so there's all sorts of ways to die there. But one of the primary ways is as you're coming back up, the oxygen in your lungs drops below that critical value, and you die. Now, I almost did this to myself once, too. I was actually in a pool. I was pushing myself to swim underwater. And once you get past the pucker factor, you can stay a long time underwater to the point at which you can kill yourself accidentally. And I was in an Olympic pool and without pushing off, I swam the length of the pool and then I swam back underwater and I swam halfway back again. I almost did three lengths underwater in an Olympic sized pool without pushing off the walls. And as I finally said, okay, it's time for me to come up, I start coming up and the world turned black. And I started turning sideways and I was next to the wall. So I I reached out and like flapped my hand and grabbed the the gutter that's at at the water level, what the what the splashes for the swimmers would go into the gutter. Right. And and hell and pulled myself up just a little bit so my mouth's out of water. I nearly died in my school's pool. Oh, because I had held my breath so long, I had trained myself not to freak out from from lack of air. And you you get past that, and you can go a long way. You can double your time if you get past the freak out point, and that's when people kill themselves. Wow, I've um, I didn't realize that that was something that uh, was common enough that people could hold their breath so long and get used to it like that, and yeah. cause that issue. My favorite thing to do when we were in a dive place was a jumping now you can't do it after you've been scuba diving a lot you don't want to change your pressure rapidly but before you're scuba diving you don't have any nitrogen built up in your blood so the first thing i would do is i would jump in the water i'd find a deep spot where there's scuba divers and i'd go down to them and i'd wave at them and i'd grab the regulator not the regulator the pressure gauge and i'd look and see how deep i was and i could regularly go down to 70 80 feet and swim around and it was rapturous yeah. Once you get past the I'm going to die stages, like I, you feel like you could stay down there forever. And then something in your brain says, yo, moron, it's time <laughs> to go back up now. Okay. And you have to pay attention to that because if you wait another 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, it'll be too late. Ugh. And so I, I 
I curtailed my diving, my my free diving. After I, you know, one of the other things that happened was um, on the Dive Master's bulletin board outside the Dive Safety Office at the University of Miami, which I spent a lot of time in taking classes and getting tanks and things like that. Um, he always had news of the diving world. And after a couple of years, I'm looking at the board and some cave diver had died. I said, hey, Rick, he's our dive master. I said, I'm guessing that pretty much one of the top 10 cave divers in the world dies every year. And he thought about it. He goes, yeah, that's about right. (laughs) 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 These are guys who are experts at it. Wow. And one out of 10 of the best ones in the world kick the bucket because something goes wrong. And if you're in a cave, you can't go to the surface. That's different than shallow water blackout. But mistakes underwater are equally as deadly. Crazy, huh? Yes, that's crazy. Okay, one more thing to talk about is underwater habitats. There are places you can go and live underwater. There's one like off the Atlantis? Florida Keys. There's one in the Bahamas. Um, there's an underwater hotel in the Florida Keys, which is a gimmick, and it's in a it's in a, a nasty green lagoon. I'm like, gross. I wouldn't want to go in there. Ew. And plus, you can't ever get dry in a place like that because there's always a moon pool. There's always open water <laughs> on the floor. Oh, okay. Oh. So... This one is called the, um, I've never got to go in it, sadly, but I did dive around it. It's called the Aquarius. It's off of Key Largo. And people will go down there. It's a 60 feet of depth. And they go and they'll live under there for a week or two. Nice. Wow. And so when you have to go to the bathroom, you jump in the water. When you have to, <laughs> it, when you have to eat, you cook inside the thing. Something that's not going to smoke or anything like that. But you know, you microwave or whatever inside this thing. I don't know if there's a microwave or not. I've never been in there. But you eat in there. You go to the bathroom by jumping in the water and swimming outside the thing. They actually had a bell, uh, an air bell. So you could, without having to put on scuba, you could jump in the water 60 feet, swim 10 feet and come up in air and just kind of hang there and go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, and the, the thing is, you're at pressure for so long, you can't go back to the surface. Oh, wow. If you went and hung at 15 feet, you'd have to hang for like 20 hours to get the nitrogen out of your blood. That's what I was about to ask. Oh, wow. And so emergencies don't exist down there. What they do is when your mission is over, they close the floor door and they decrease the pressure slowly inside this thing. So now you're underwater in a negative pressure thing that so that all the outside water is pressing in now. It's not evenly balanced and, you know, risk of leaks and implosions and things like that. But they build it strong. They'll bring it down to one atmosphere of pressure and you just sit there in your pajamas or, I don't know, whatever clothes you have that are dry as you slowly off gas and then they'll slowly bring it back up to pressure. You put on your scuba suit, you jump in the water and you just swim out the thing and go back up to the surface. Wow. So since all the nitrogen is out of your blood, a 30 second dip and go straight up is you don't get any extra nitrogen in there. And that's how that thing works. And it's really cool. One of my friends though, a professor that I know has a story about an octopus. Why? And because of nitrogen arcosis and because of living at pressure for so long, you, you stop thinking. You can't do math anymore. You're, if you're like, you know that thing where you touch your thumb to your pinky, your ring finger, your middle finger, your pointer finger back and forth and see how fast you can do that? Yeah. That yeah. is one of the gauges that a, a scuba diver will do to test the reflexes. So you go down 150 feet. If you can't do the, 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 you tell yourself, <laughs> go up it, because you lose all your reaction, your, your reaction time, your, your brain power, everything shuts down. So he's underwater for a couple of days and he sees an octopus and he decides he wants to collect this octopus and bring it back to the Aquarius. And he's going to do this by putting it into this mesh bag that he has. Um, dude, man, it's an octopus. The octopus bit him on the hand. Ooh. Huh. 
and he didn't tell anybody. And a day or so later, his hand is turning black and purple. Oh. And he had to say, all right, um, I need an emergency evac. And it was 17 hours later when he got to the surface because they had to decompress him first. And the whole crew had to decompress. The whole, the whole mission was over because everyone had to decompress. Wow. And then they all just came up. So, yeah. Another weird, weird, cool story during the Cold War. There's some really, really interesting books on submarine warfare during the Cold War. In fact, one of my friends was on a boomer, which is a nuclear submarine. And my other friend was a sonar man on a fast attack submarine. And he reads this book after I read the book and I told him about it. And he goes, oh, that's what we were doing. Because <laughs> 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 of very much a compartmentalization of knowledge on such a mission when you're going, you know, breaking up into archangels in the White Sea, north of Russia and trying to tap into phone lines. Well, one of the things that they did was they invented a submarine that had a pressure vessel for divers in it. And they would go in there and stay there for like 10 days or two weeks at incredibly high pressure. And they would take the submarine to the bottom of the ocean near Kamchatka over a underwater cable that was running to some Soviet military base. Yeah. And the divers would leave the submarine under some very highfalutin, complicated mixture of gases. And they would tap into this line. And the guys in the submarine would be listening to all the communications going back and forth um, to, the, to the, the naval base or the army, whatever it was, maybe a nuclear missile base or something like that. And we were actually listening to the Soviets underwater Ooh, wow and then they invented a box that they could clamp on there and leave it and come back and get the recordings but these guys would be spending days at incredibly high pressure living at this pressure and then going out into four degrees celsius water that is pitch black with a current and if anything went wrong they weren't coming home Ugh. so that's how far Scuba diving has advanced since the days of Jacques Cousteau. We can do crazy things. It's amazingly fun. Yeah. Lots of cool, um, the physics, the chemistry, the classes of that, that's neat stuff. Everyone wants to get past the classes and just go in the water, fine. But one of the cool things you can do is you can take your classes online and then go to a dive resort and just do your open water diving with a dive master at a dive resort. Now, I don't really recommend that even though that's really the way most people have to learn because most dive masters at, you know, Acapulco or something like that, they're, they're good people. They're great people, but they're not really, um, 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 top notch as far as safety is concerned, shall we say? Yeah. And they see tourists all the time and tourists can be really annoying. <laughs> and yeah, I, I could imagine one of them just getting slack. Yeah. Whatever yeah. fat lady, jump in the water I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe if you make it. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> but millions of people around the world scuba dive every year very few people get hurt and you, most of the injuries are sunburn or getting scraped by a coral i mean there's almost no shark bites barracudas don't really attack people um, people might mm. get stung by a jellyfish or a fish or try to you know put a octopus in their bag but it's a very safe practice especially now with computers and it is so much worth it to be able to explore the beauty, the elegance, the wonder of the oceanic world. I know, I know it might sound kind of silly, but for comparison, 
If you had somebody who was the other way around that wasn't experienced to life on the land, breathing air and staying on the ground, not falling from great heights, and a, a few people like that were having an adult conversation about, here's what it's like to go out on land. You got to be careful. You don't fall into any holes and you don't yeah. want to- Oh, those fire ants. You know, watch out those fire ants, man. I'll just get, And rednecks, man. Shooting guns in the woods. Look out Woo! for- Yeah. Look out for lightning <laughs> and- uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't cross streets without looking both ways. It, it, we're actually surrounded by a lot of dangers and oh, yeah. we're just quite accustomed to them at this level. So we don't do foolish things like stub our toe on a door. But when you talk about going underwater, it, it, it's kind of like that. It's like, well, these dangers will also kill you. But for some reason, because they are the unknown, I'm a more careful guy. And I want to do sports where I know that there's not as much risk. But when you describe it, in spite of the fact that you spent most of the last hour talking about the dangers, it actually sounds <laughs> really amazing. Yeah, but after 600 dives, obviously, it's not deadly. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Like, I didn't like scuba diving yeah. at first. Hmm. It wasn't as pretty as everyone said, and it was a lot more work than I thought. And it was—I was just uncomfortable in the water. My mask kept leaking, and you, know, you run out of air, and it's all. But after about fifty dives, I all of a sudden realized I was very comfortable. And after a hundred dives, I was like—I I felt like a fish in the water. Wow! It was my second hmm. home. It was—I was perfectly natural. Everything was fine. It was no stress at all. I could dive all day long, multiple times, no big deal. It was it was easy peasy. That sounds awesome. Hmm. Well, good place to wrap up. I guess so. Too bad. Thank you, Rob, for taking us into that deep dive. Hey, that's funny. Gonna have to return to the ocean another time. So thank you, everybody, for joining us on this quest. If you found this episode interesting in any way, which I'm sure you did, consider sharing it with a friend or a family member. And if you want to dig deeper into any of the topics or dive deeper into these topics you can find links to stuff that we discussed in the show notes at on, uh, on our website they're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 43 the show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone and you should also check out rob's other project biblical genetics which is available at biblicalgenetics.com it's also on facebook and youtube where you can watch his videos and join discussions in the comments. And you want to find me, then uh, look me up on Twitter on at JCS Darnell, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox.